You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is from Matthew 12, verses 24 through 30, and then 36 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed a good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The seed is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, You guys can just stay standing right there in front. (laughs) Micah, especially you, everybody else. No, uh, you can be seated. Isn't that weird when you're in the front? Because you don't know for sure, but you don't want to turn around and check. You did the right thing. I know because I'm a pastor's kid. I was raised around this, this whole routine, and sometimes I got it right, and sometimes I did not get it right. <clears throat> but as far as I can tell, you guys have not been verbally corrected from the front row yet, which is excellent, because I've got about 10 of these traumatic moments that I can remember from childhood where you know, we're the family, we're sitting in the front, and I don't know, it was just a long time to sit there. Dad was saying things, they were important, but get a little fidgety. Maybe I inadvertently set my watch alarm to go off at exactly 12 p.m. just to remind Dad that it was going a little bit long, and then I had to be verbally corrected in front of everyone. No, I really did that, and you take it for granted after a while. I mean, not you guys, you guys are great. When you do the pastor's kid thing and you grow up that way, you know, the, the things, the pressures you feel in life are, Dad, come on, let's go. Like, everybody heard you talk about things, let's, let's go, let's get on to the next thing. And you hear Dad talk all week, and so you're like, well, I don't get why everybody would come together for this, because, like, I get to hear him tell me about how to mow the lawn, and how I'm doing in school, and I just get it. And so, really, I tried this one week. I tried the set my calculator watch alarm that I earned by selling things door-to-door for some Cub Scouts program, and it was a calculator, and you could do the four basic mathematical functions on it, and it had an alarm. It was the first time I'd ever been trusted with this level of responsibility. And I'm not kidding. I just felt like Dad's sermons were starting to leak a little bit too much into my Sunday afternoon. And so seated in the front row, I, was, I devised a plan. I'm like, I'm just going to make this seem like it just randomly happened to go off. And so, sure enough, 
The alarm goes off faithfully at noon. Dad is to the, the gigantic, important part in the entire sermon. So there are a bunch of people there, you know, who'd been going to church for a long time. There's some other people there. Probably people were feeling like this burning in their bosom, like it is time for me to finally respond to the call of God on my life. Beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, oh, what? I mean, I have to let it go for a minute because you can't, I mean, I need him to hear it and register that he simply talked about God and eternity and all things redemptive a little too long. So I'm like, oh, I can't. It's really hard. I don't understand how to operate. Like, if I push any button, it actually stops the alarm. I can't figure it out. And dad comes over and he makes eye contact with me. It's like, son, I see what you're doing and we're going to deal with this when we get home. You remember the scene in The Lion King when Mufasa says, I need to teach my son a lesson. And the little ears go down. <laughs> I was that. And I did get taught a lesson. I never, I never did set that alarm again. I tried to sabotage church because I really needed to go and do something else. And my dad immediately was like, no, that is not some random alarm that just happened to go off at noon. An enemy did this to sabotage church intentionally to get us home quicker, and the enemy is my boy. And my dad is fantastic. Great, pa great pastor, great dad, also very socially intuitive, and I don't know how nine-year-old me thought that was going to work out, but I had it in my head that I could do this and bring about results that I wanted, and I mean, how to sabotage work, results that I wanted without having to go through the front door and actually face what I wanted to face. Now, in this situation, it's an absurd example, but I mean, these are the mechanics of sabotage and manipulation, right? You do things in such a way where you want a certain desired outcome that you, one, cannot afford socially to admit in front of everyone else, and that you, two, could never get away with if you admitted it in front of everybody else because they would see you coming and they would address the thing. Well, this impulse that was in my dark little nine-year-old heart is an impulse that apparently abides in the hearts of men and women throughout all of time because, well, we have this capacity to cook up dark plans to destroy beautiful things to get our way when we couldn't get it through the front door. And that is the kind of scenario that we're dealing with in the passage we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 13, a situation where somebody has made something good and beautiful, something redemptive, something through which provision will come, but there's this enemy who comes along. And it's like, no, I have better ideas. I want to see this beautiful thing get ruined and damaged. You'll notice there's nothing redemptive about the enemy plan in the story we just heard. There's no proactive thing where it's like, well... I really want to do this other beautiful redemptive thing that will make things better. But that guy is hogging the field and using it to do his beautiful redemptive thing. It's just not fair. I'm going to box out the beautiful redemptive thing he can do so I can make something beautiful that provides for people and that nourishes and so on and so forth. No, it's just rage, jealousy, controllingness. It's the darkest impulses you can imagine. It's a desire to take something that is beautiful and redemptive and wreck it. Funny thing about this passage is that pretty much anything else that we might run into as we're just teaching through the Bible, you get it all in one chunk. 
But this is, literally, I cannot think of another place in the Bible where the natural way to teach it on a Sunday morning as you're going straight through the text is to skip some stuff in the middle. This parable unfolds over the course of two scenes with some stuff that happens in the middle as well. And so to unpack the thing, we got to look at part one. We got to consider what happens in the middle zone. And then we got to consider part two. Big picture. Here's what we got. The New Testament is happening on the heels of an amazing long-term relationship between God and a group of people he picked out of the clear blue sky for absolutely no reason, no merit of their own, other than, yeah, you seem broken enough that I could demonstrate my glory in having a relationship with you. And so God goes and makes this relationship with Abram. Eventually, the guy ends up being called Abraham. And he makes a deal with Abraham way back in the day. And the deal goes like this. You, right there, that guy, you are going to be a great nation. I'm just going to make a whole people out of you. And whether you're an idiot or you're awesome, it doesn't matter. This is an unconditional deal. You are going to be blessed and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. And that really sets the trajectory of what we call the Old Testament. Well, a bunch of time passes and these descendants of Abraham become very populous. They end up in captivity in Egypt. And God, who made that deal with Abraham, is like, not done with deals. I got another one. Haven't forgotten you people, even though you're in slavery. He says, all right, uh, you right there, that dude, I pick you. You're going to be the leader of this people. And here's the message for the people. I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And all the nations of the world are going to know that I am the one true God Because when you obey me, I'm going to bless you in ways that could only be attributed to you being the children of the one true God. But if you disobey me, I'm going to punish you in a way that no one could ascribe to anyone other than the one true God. So it's a conditional deal, this second one with Moses, that says whether you act cool or whether you act dumb, either way, everybody is going to know that I am the one true God. A bunch more time passes. Call it maybe 400 years. And you got this deal lingering in the background in the minds of God's chosen people that he made with Abraham unconditionally. Going to be a great nation. You're going to be blessed and you're going to, the nations are going to be blessed through you. They got this other deal lingering in the back of their heads that conditionally, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people and everybody's going to know. And along comes this king, the second king of the monarchy, a guy named David, the greatest king of all the kings that they ever had, the one that still gets looked back to as the one who understood what he was doing most of the time. And David says to God, I am going to build an amazing house for you. And God's like, yeah, cool. I mean, I like the idea. We are going to get to that. But instead, I've actually got a deal for you. And what I'm going to do for you is make you, David, an unconditional promise that on your throne is going to sit a great king who's going to come one day. And through this great king who will reign forever on the throne of David from your household, this king is going to bring restoration to Israel. This king is going to bring healing and life and fix all of the stuff that is broken and needs to be fixed. Well, shortly after that, the kingdom falls apart. Well, how's that going to work? How can you have all of these promises fulfilled when the people to whom the promises were made now live in another country and don't have a king and don't have a nation, how's it going to work? 
And this brings us toward the end of the Old Testament and the age of the prophets. And the prophets come along and they say, no, 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 it looks like it's all burnt out and dead. But there's this little shoot that's still going to come up off of it. These promises are still real. This is still going to happen. And then we get 400-ish years of quiet. And during those 400-ish years after we wrap up what we call the Old Testament, the people to whom these promises were made, these promises around which all of their existence and understanding of God and the world are structured, they got nothing. They don't hear anything from God. But they do hear things from foreign conquerors. Alexander the Great rolls through and conquers them. Then he dies young, and his generals rule them, and they rule them brutally. Then for a little while, they rise up and take up arms and throw off the shackles of these leaders and have a short-lived little kingdom, but uh, the whole time that's going on out west in Italy, Rome is becoming a serious thing, and eventually the famous general Pompey rolls in, and he conquers them again, and now they're under the boot of yet another foreign occupier. And by the time we get to Jesus and the passage we're looking at today, we have got an original audience that Jesus is talking to who are exhausted. There is supposed to be this beautiful, redemptive kingdom that is supposed to come. The God who had us intentionally walk up to an inland sea and then parted it so we could cross on dry ground and then killed our enemies, that God said he would follow through on this. But it's not happening. The same God who could feed us in the desert, the same God who could defeat our enemies, who could make the sun stand still, for whatever reason, has just let us twist in the wind for 400 years. Were we not obedient enough? Well, a bunch of them tried more obedient. We'll make even more rules. Will, will that do it? There's confusion in this audience. They can't picture anymore what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. They don't know. They can't picture anymore what the Messiah is supposed to look like. Should it be a general? Somebody to just kill the emperor? Maybe, maybe we need an assassin? Maybe we need some guerrilla warfare type that rallies people out in the desert? Maybe we need some weirdo like John the Baptist to eat bugs and dress in camel hair and just like say words and stories we don't understand? Uh, maybe we need some big social movement. Maybe we just need somebody who can lead us into appeasing the Romans. Maybe appeasement is the strategy. They can't agree. They don't know. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And they can't figure out how this stuff they know to be true, this promise of God, this promise of God, this promise of God, they can't square it with history. Now, it's easy to look back on this original audience. It's easy to look back on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, these guys were just idiots. Man, they had the work of God right in front of them, and they, they just couldn't get it. But it's hard. It's hard when you have a history that long, when you've seen what you've seen, and now you see what feels like nothing to figure the thing out. And then along comes this guy. Other people had come along. I have a little bit of a cough. That's why I'm munching on cough drops, and I'm going to continue to do so. They're cherry, and they're delicious, and I've got a couple extra. So if it gets to that point for you, let me know. The beginning of Matthew has this account of this guy who shows up. He ticks all the boxes. Everything the Messiah, the one who was promised to David, who was supposed to show up and sit on his throne and rule forever, everything about him checks out. Jesus could be the one. Yeah, but the Messiah is supposed to be able to do miraculous stuff. Like, 
make it so the blind can see and the lame can walk and the dead come back to life. Nobody can do that, except Jesus can do that, and he does that. And now people are afraid to even utter the possibility out of fear of getting their hopes up or out of fear of getting punished by the people who wouldn't want them identifying a Messiah. Everybody's wondering. Then Jesus walks up on a hill, and he stands in front of everybody in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and he explains this idea of a kingdom. Oh, that's language that sounds a lot like that third promise. So everybody perks up, and they listen really closely. And Jesus describes a kingdom with upside-down values, beautiful values, that are different than world values, that are different than the values of their religious leadership at the time, that are different than the values of Rome. And they start to get pretty excited about this. But still, even his own disciples are hesitant to offer the suggestion of who he might actually be. Some demons blurted out one time after that sermon. Like, yeah, he's the son of God. And Jesus is like, yeah, zip it into pigs off a cliff. We're not doing that just yet. So there's this pregnant question that's sitting there as we get towards chapter 13 in Matthew. The questions are, are you the king? Are you the one who was promised, or should we be looking for somebody else? Even John the Baptist asked that in chapter 11. But the second question is, okay, let's just quietly say you are the king. You're the one who all these promises point to. You're the one who all the law and all the prophets point to. You're the one who all of history, for people who are religious, not religious, people who are Jewish, not Jewish, what all of history points to, it looks like it might be you, of all people, Jesus of Nazareth, but you keep talking about this kingdom, and I can't picture the kingdom. What does a kingdom look like? It's clear you're not going to take up arms. You're not going to kill anybody. It's clear you have no army. You want no army. How would you have a kingdom like this? How will you conquer? How will it work? And last week, Josh did a spectacular job. My goodness, you are lucky to have him. He is enormously talented at this document. And I appreciate the work he does so much. Last week, he crushed it in terms of talking about the parable that Jesus leads with to answer the question that everybody had on their minds going into chapter 13. How's the kingdom going to work? I mean, if you can break the laws of time and space, Jesus, you can raise people from the dead, you can fix messed up, deformed hands, you can walk on water, you can cast out demons, you can control nature. That's pretty much everything. Chapters 8 and 9 just line up every single powerful thing and have Jesus one at a time knock them over because he's more powerful than that. Then what's the obvious question? If you are the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets and the promises so far, and if you do have unlimited power over nature, why isn't everybody signing up? Shouldn't literally everyone be jumping in for this thing? And why wouldn't they be? And so... As Josh very effectively covered last week, Jesus starts by, what was his word? Calibrating expectations. Three of the four types of soil on which the sower generously scatters the data packets that contain the DNA of the kingdom of God, three of the four types of soil on which that lands, long term, it's not going to pay off. One of the four types of soil is going to produce the harvest 30, 60, 100 times. 
But Jesus does not conclude his explanation of how this kingdom works by simply doing that calibration and by simply explaining the values of the king and the generosity of the king. He goes on to explain much more. I heard the passage, so I don't need to read every bit of it again. But he tells them this parable that comes immediately on the heels of the explanation. Maybe it would be helpful to just make this geographical. Okay, let's pretend I'm Jesus, I'm in the boat. I like analogies where I get to be Jesus. Actually, that feels dirty. Okay, you're Jesus. No, we'll stick with this. So I'm Jesus, I'm in the boat, the crowd is on the shore. He goes out in the boat, he gives this first parable. Then somewhere in here there's an aside, and the disciples, I don't know if they're like in little floaties or something, and they kind of paddle over to the boat, and they're like, we don't understand the parable. I don't think they can hear us. Can you just explain the parable so we can act like we know what we're doing? And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's reasonable, sure. And he walks them through what we're doing here and why he speaks in parables and what that parable means. And then I imagine the disciples kind of paddle back over to where they are, and they're all floating out there too. And then Jesus is like, all right, here's another one. And the other one that comes immediately on the heels of the explanation of the parable of the sower is this one about the wheat and the weeds. All of these parables have a twist. If you find the twist, you find the interpretive pinch point of the parable. Kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Okay, so we've got the same kind of sower that we were just talking about a second ago. He's competent. He sows good, sealed, uh, sows good seed. And we're talking about now what looks to be roughly equivalent to the fourth type of soil. You'll notice the text does not say the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who went out and threw a bunch more seed on some pavement. No, we already covered that. So we've narrowed our focus from this big grand picture of four different types of soil down now to the zoom-in focus on the one good kind of soil where it's likely to work. This soil is prepared. It should be receptive. This should be great. The text also clarifies that, again, the seed is good. The seed in the first parable, the parable of the sower, was good. It's the values of the kingdom of God. It's the data packet, the repeatable data packet of the values of the kingdom of God. Excellent. It's good here, too. But, oh, while everyone was sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Well, you destructive jerks. There's no upside to this. Weeds produce nothing, no value. There is no attempt to say, you know, then enemies came along and they really thought the people who were served by the food produced by this field would be better served by weeds. And so they sowed weeds to better show, no, 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 steal, kill, and destroy. That's the agenda here. Jealousy, anger, destructiveness. The enemy isn't doing anything redeeming, just throwing rocks. Metaphorically, he's really throwing dirty seeds. And he sows we, uh, these weeds among the wheat. Now, at this point in the text, we don't really know what kind of weeds. They're just weeds. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Okay, this all checks out, squares with reality. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? I wonder at this point, if while they're all floating around out there, and Peter is a few feet away from the boat with the really thick stripe of white sunscreen down his nose, or maybe even the full Zuckerberg joker face, and he's floating there, he's got his little beverage, and Jesus says that. I wonder if Peter was like, 
That sounded a lot like me. I'm always telling Jesus what to do. Maybe I should stop that. Or I wonder if he was so not self-aware that that just slid by. Because that line right there sounds a ton like Peter throughout the rest of the Gospels. He's excited. He's energized. But Peter is the one who'll go up to Jesus and be like, what, you said you're going to... You're going to go to Jerusalem and you have to to die and be raised again? Not on my watch. You are wrong, Lord Jesus. I give you my life and you're wrong. Let me straighten you out. Jesus is constantly being corrected by Peter who knows, oh, so much. And I really feel like this has a little bit of that Peter tone to it. Didn't you sow good seeds in your field? It's a little bit accusatory, isn't it? It starts with the question, though framed so as not to get in trouble, It starts with the question of, are you sure you didn't get this right? So then where's the bad stuff from? Maybe I read into it too much. An enemy did this, he replied. So the master has no trouble seeing exactly what's going on. My seeds do not contain the data packets of destructiveness. They contain the data packets only of provision, only of the values of the kingdom to run into the metaphor. So he knows immediately what's wrong. Wasn't from me. I got a buddy who doesn't lie. It's cool. He's got you know, other annoying qualities, but he doesn't lie. He's a good dude. And he is so incredibly careful not to lie because, as he says, it's just easier not to. You never have to remember who you told what to. That one time I was privy to him being accused of lying or of doing something that he didn't do. Not the biggest deal, but he got accused of it. And he was able to decisively say, that's a lie. Didn't do it. Didn't say it. Because he knows, because he just doesn't tell lies. In a much greater sense, this character here, the master, is able to say with certainty, not my destructive seeds, because I don't sow destructive seeds. I only sow good seeds. It was an enemy. So then the servants, again, sounding a lot like Peter, said, do you want us to go and pull him up? This is the same Peter who upon seeing Jesus about to be arrested, even though Jesus had told him half a dozen times this has to happen, went right to the sword, and went around hacking at ears. Oh, you're going to mess with Jesus? You're going to taste my blade. Jesus is like, stop. Stop with the sword and the stabbing. We're not doing any of that. I've made it abundantly clear. And likewise here, I picture the same kind of thing. You want me to go do something? Do you want me to go solve this problem right now? I can do it. I can figure it out. Like, okay, tell me what to do. Let's go rip things up. No, he answered. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow up until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. When I first encountered this passage, it was about, oh, I don't know. I was, I was a kid. I didn't think too much about it. This seemed reliable. I would say when I second encountered this passage, I had already been burned by that eye of the needle gate legend. You've heard this one, like it's easier for you know, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And of course, then some rich guy heard that and was like, I bet there's a gate somewhere in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And it just means that it's like inconvenient for a camel to squish down to get through that. And that's what Jesus meant. Well, no, there is no such gate. It's an invention of the late 19th century that somebody came up with. And it's entertaining. And now they've, after the fact, named one that for tourists and so forth. But it's one of those things that sometimes in our zeal to do good biblical exegesis, we maybe get a little ambitious and get suckered in by things that are specious. So I kind of wondered, 
is there actually some practice where people would go to someone's field and sneak in there at night in like little robber farmer clothes and throw out seeds from a bag labeled bad seeds and then sneak off and wait for their enemy's field to be ruined? Because that seems a little bit far-fetched. Yep, turns out though it's a thing. Definitely, actually a thing. And there is a plant that looks a whole lot like Eastern Mediterranean wheat. Uh, the I never get these Latin names right, but the Lolium telementum. That was my first check of notes there. The Latin scared me a little bit. This is, uh, the, the name of this is the same thing from which the Lollards was derived, a group that were a little bit, um, well, accused by their enemies of being slow of thought. And so this, I, this word, this notion of Lollardry is attached to what this particular type of plant, uh, the, I think the casual name is the Darnel plant, would do to you. If you ingest too much of this plant that turns a little bit more purple as it grows up, if you ingest it dried, it, it makes you loopy, real loopy. In fact, it can kill cattle. If they eat too much of this stuff, they get so goofy that they'll just straight up die. If you integrate this even into bread and bake it out, it would have an intoxifying effect. I'm, I'm being gentle about the whole thing. You can make the connection with certain types of weeds that have certain types of effects on people in your own head. It's intoxicating in light, if light. It's toxic, if heavy. And effectively, if bread in the ancient Near East became contaminated with the darnel plant, you just couldn't, you couldn't sell it. I mean, it would ruin your business. It would ruin your reputation. The, the practice of wrecking fields in this way dates back to the 13th century. The uh, ancient Akkadians, the very earliest expressions of the Akkadians, did this and recorded it proudly. I think you can still see the inscription at the British Museum if you read Akkadian cuneiform. And it indicates that it's a way to say, boom, we owned this other people group, that they ruined all of their fields by planting the darnel plant so that they could never again grow wheat from those fields. In the seventh century, uh, Ashur Benapal, what a brutal name to say, another Assyrian king did the same to the city of Elam, salted the fields to an extent, but salting is really expensive. It's not that expensive to sow tares, and so he did that. Uh, we see other accounts, most famously of the Romans destroying Carthage in the second century BC, salting and tearing their fields as well. So no, this was an actual thing, and in fact, it was such a common practice for, well, a common nefarious practice that the Codex of Justinian, you guys heard of Justinian? He was a fifth, early sixth century Roman emperor, like the last great glory of Rome emperor. And he tried to gather all of the laws from all of the history of Rome and put them together into one book so they would have a unified legal code across the empire. One of his criteria for what went in here is only stuff only uh, criminal law could only apply to things that happened commonly enough that they needed to be addressed. He didn't want to fill his law book with a bunch of silly things that would never happen, like the old goofy laws you hear about on old-timey radio, like, oh, you can't spit on a sidewalk in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, or you immediately go to prison because of the long dresses the ladies wear. Now, he didn't want silly laws like that that would make people laugh. He only wanted laws that actually applied to things. And Justinian 
addresses the issue of intentionally sabotaging an enemy's field. So it was a thing, and the original audience, which would have had in mind all of this history that I'm talking about and all of these questions about the kingdom and who Jesus is, also would have had in mind famous historical occurrences in recent memory of this exact evil practice happening. They would have recognized this. And so he wraps up the parable and then gives a couple more from out in the boat. A couple of micro parables, one about mustard seed, one about some yeast. And then in verse 34, we pick it back up after the boat time is over. And it says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Now, isn't this interesting? They wrap everything up. Goodbye. Thank you for coming to our boat sermon. Have a great day. They shook hands. They did all the after church stuff. And then the disciples and Jesus go back into the the house, Peter's house, presumably in Capernaum. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. See you now. And they shut the door and immediately the disciples were like, okay, we understood all the other ones, but I do not get the whole wheat and weeds thing. Can you please explain that one to us? And Jesus is like, so glad you asked. And he answers, the one who sowed the seeds is the son of man. Now we saw that one coming, right? It's the same thing as the parable of the sower. The one throwing out the seeds, in this case, very specifically, is Jesus himself. So what we're not hearing about here is a sower who is Jesus or anyone working on the part of Jesus. Here he's very specifically talking about his own work in putting out these these data packets of the truth of the kingdom of God. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Right here is where it gets weird. Because I have heard probably half a dozen times growing up in Bible college, I went to a Christian high school, I heard it there. I have heard this passage interpreted as a passage that gives us guidance about what to do when stuff gets weird in church and bad people infiltrate the church. Like the, the, the field is the church that Jesus has made. And then the enemy comes along and he puts bad stuff in the church and it makes church worse. And then that has to be sorted out. I, I, I mean, I, maybe you've heard this before. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I just went to a really, really bad Bible college. But it so doesn't say that. He tells us exactly what the field is. The field is the world. So it can't be the church because it says the field is the world and it's in red. So that's it. The field then is this fourth type of soil from the parable of the sower. The sower goes out and he scatters the seed into this really great field. It's all kinds of different people. It's all over the place. And the opportunity in all these different pockets of the world to to have this kingdom grow up and take root, it's right there. It's ready to go. But the sabotage happens there. We'll get, get back to that point in a minute. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. Oh, okay. So the seed did what it was supposed to do. The wheat 
is the good seed. It's productive. It yields a harvest 30, 60, 100 times, just like in the parable of the sower with the fourth good soil. Cool. That's very easy, very clear. But the bad seed or the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. We saw that coming too, right? The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Okay, so this is starting to take shape. Jesus is saying that he sends out the message of the kingdom into the world. Some of it takes root and grows up and little kingdom plants, to stretch the analogy, hopefully you and me, people who've responded to the message of the kingdom, sprout up. And in doing so, the kingdom is duplicated again and again. The devil comes along, sees this beautiful redemptive thing. He can't make anything. He doesn't redeem anything. He just wrecks beautiful things. So he comes along and tries to sow destruction. And then the end of this little paragraph we just read indicates but that there's a reckoning that comes along at some point. And the harvesters that help with that reckoning are apparently angels. And in verse 40, it says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. That's horrifying. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, why not just do that at the beginning? I think that gets pretty close to the heart of the parable. Why not just go out at the beginning and skip all the, you know, the bad people? Why not just go have the reckoning as soon as you found out that the bad seeds were planted and we'll just make everything that is not Christian and not good We'll simply go away and we'll just, we'll do the job of the angels and of Jesus and we'll rip that up. We'll certainly get it right. And we'll just throw that into the fire and then you'll only have Christian things. Why wouldn't you want only Christian things and only Bible things? Well, the original audience, they would have known what Jesus was doing here. Because the original audience all would have or most would have known that that wheat and particularly that darnel plant, that lardium trouble, trouble, flubblum, That plant, they look identical until maturity. You can't tell. The roots intertwine like aspen trees. You can't go through and rip out the one without destroying the other. You simply can't. The servants, though well-intentioned, are simply unqualified to resolve the problem at that phase in the game. It is only later that these two things can be properly identified and separated out. If you do this thing too early, you play into the hands of the enemy. The enemy in this story is hoping that the servants will get ambitious and go out and be like, well, we'll just uh, just get rid of all the bad stuff here. We can handle this. The servant is hoping, or the, the enemy is hoping that the master won't catch the servants and say, no, 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 you're not qualified. You won't get it right. You'll rip up everything that's beautiful in your zeal to get rid of what is bad. You're just going to have to wait and trust that this field is, in fact, tended. You can't go tear up the bad stuff in this scenario because you wreck the redemptive stuff. But that does not mean that no one is paying attention. So we take 
a text like this, and we could probably dream up about a bazillion applications or interpretations that we could land on. We could take it and say, well, he says the field is the world, but it could apply to the church. Why couldn't we just say that it means, uh, you know, don't sort things out in church. If things get weird or if something destructive happens in church, you just got to let that go. Um, because this parable says that you couldn't tell the difference. Uh, no. I mean, just five chapters later in Matthew 18, Jesus gives clear instruction for what to do when things get weird in church. And the assumption there is that through the Word of God and Christ's authority, who is there with you, even if two or three are gathered in that such a hypothetical, difficult situation, that through that, you can figure out what's gone wrong in church. And there is a process, gracious and humble, forgiving process by which we resolve things that go wrong between us and church. So it can't mean just, oh, just let everything go in church, though I have heard that interpretation. It can't mean, well, who can tell what's a God idea and what is a not God idea? Who can tell what thought or ideology is of the kingdom and which one isn't? We just need to let ideas grow up alongside each other and ultimately someday God will sort out true from false and he'll make those judgments. Literally everything that Jesus teaches indicates the opposite. No, you're supposed to get to a place where you learn to recognize what the values of the kingdom are and learn to empathetically, patiently, forgivingly recognize what the not values of the kingdom are. And then you're supposed to do things that are in keeping with the values of the kingdom. Everything about Jesus' example in his teaching supposes that you are supposed to discriminate between ideas. Love people unconditionally, but ideas, they're supposed to be fair game. It can't mean that. It can't mean that truth is unknowable. You know, wheat, weeds, who can tell the difference? What is truth? Who can actually know that? Only God. So someday, we as Christians then, because of this parable, just need to believe that God will come back and tell us what was actually true. Well, isn't that why he's teaching in these parables? Like, didn't he already show up and tell us what was true? No, that's not the meaning of the parable at all. What the parable must mean is that God, dating all the way back to these promises that he made to these people, that he made to the world through these people, God has been engaged in a redemptive process that is working. His will cannot be thwarted. His will to redeem, to show compassion, to even lay down the life of his own son as a ransom for many. This is unthwartable. His redemptive plan is working. It will work. Redemption will happen. God will be glorified through it. People we never would have imagined who are shown, we would never imagine would be shown the grace and mercy of God will be shown the grace and mercy of God in heaps. God will build this new family of faith. He will build this kingdom and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So we know that. But there is an enemy who would like to wreck it. The enemy is of inferior power and inferior stock, 
And his game is not build a rival awesome kingdom that's beautiful and redemptive too. His game is throw rocks. Try to break something beautiful, obfuscate and accuse. It's petty. It's small. It has no future. If such an enemy ever were in charge, they wouldn't have anything they can do because they don't know how to lead or redeem. So we have a scenario then that describes the kingdom in the context of the unfolding of history. We live in a time right now that is being described by this parable right here. And what's going on in this time right now is that two things are growing up alongside each other. The king is fully aware. It is no news to God that you see insane things on Twitter and on Facebook. He knows. He knows. It is no news to God that people do horrible things to each other locally, in other cities far away, across the oceans. He knows. He knows. He knows. It is no news to God that people do awful, destructive, mean, murderous things, that they say awful things. It is no news to God that people think bad ideas that we've already tried and that will never, ever work and are murderous to their core. He knows. He's totally clear on all of this. He's the unlimited sovereign of creation. He knows. This text is designed to remind us that the field is tended. If you guzzle unending gallons of panic news, hostility news, whip people into a frenzy so they'll vote this way or that way news, you may be suckered into believing that this field is not tended, but this field is tended. None of it's a surprise. Not only is it tended, but there is a reckoning that is coming. This is the part where it might be tempted for us to be like, yeah, and then everybody will know we were right. And all those jerks on Facebook who said all those things about me are going to have to admit that they were wrong when God comes back. That's not the point. That's not the spirit of it. The spirit of it is one that is humbling to us because of the power of God. I don't know you all super well, but I promise you're wrong about things and need the grace of God. I just, I don't know which things. I know me pretty well, and I know I'm wrong about things and need the grace of God. I see other people doing destructive stuff out there. Yeah, it's not too hard to see. Like, I understand that's wrong and needs the grace of God. But this reckoning and this sorting, thank God, is not your job. I would argue that this might be the most liberating passage in the entire New Testament because this burden that we're always trying to grab unto ourselves to say, man, we got to go out there. We got to rally things up. We have to defeat the bad people after we identify them and figure out who needs to go. We need to get our hands on the levers of power so that we can, much like the servant who is eager to handle things. We can rip up the bad stuff and make it go away and leave only the good stuff and then go back to the master and be like, we solved everything. We used force and judgment and we got it. I think you're going to be very happy with what we've done. No, you don't have to. Like you just don't have to. And part of the beauty of this is because you would screw it up. Nothing personal. I think you're great. I even like me, but I would screw it up. I, I, I can't do this. I can't. I can't make these judgments. I can't sort this stuff out. I can't penetrate to the soul. I can't 
save, I can't deliver. It is not given to me to judge the nations. I can tell the difference sometimes between biblical truth and a lie. I can tell the difference between what looks like the redemptive, beautiful work of God and the destructive, murderous work of the enemy. That I can do, and I'm supposed to be able to do that. My eyes are supposed to be open to that. God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit lives in me, so I'm supposed to have my eyes open to these things, but I am not judge. And ultimately, I don't have to fix it because the field is tended. What I have to do is be faithful. Faithful in representing the gospel of Christ to people who aren't like me. Faithful in imitating the redemptive impulse of the king to go out and do redemptive things, be redemptive, to do kingdom stuff, to live kingdom stuff, to imitate the character of Christ in my own life. That I'm supposed to do. To crush the enemy by my power. God will do that. That's pretty scary. But his judgment is absolutely correct, which means the pressure is off of us. Our call is to faithfulness. We go out into the great wide world with the message of the grace of Christ. We go out into the great wide world with the redemptive attributes of the kingdom of God laid out in this document. It's transformative. It's powerful. We go out into the great wide world equipped with the word of God. It will not return void. But as we get toward the home stretch here, historically, we see this pattern in the church. And by church, I mean all of us. I mean our Catholic friends, our Orthodox friends, our other brand of Protestant friends. I mean all of us, and I mean us. We go into panic mode. It's easy to believe when it's easy and things are going well. When culture starts to shift toward feeling like, whoa, people don't like this anymore. This is harder on us all of a sudden. Every single version of us ever suddenly wrestles with the temptation to say, we just, the field might be tended, but I just can't wait any longer. We're going to have to take power. We're going to have to be the ones who create a coalition and fix the bad people and sort out what is good and what is bad. I'm not talking about the basic justice of society. That is clearly called for in Scripture. I'm talking about an impulse to exchange the seed, the data packet of the message of the gospel and the word of God for raw power. There is no promise that raw power does anything to advance the kingdom. There is no promise that raw power and force will make people into Christians. But we do have a promise about the gospel. It's the power of salvation. So we read a passage like this, and what are we to do with it? One, we're supposed to learn something about how God is and how the kingdom works. The moment we're in is a battle between two things that are growing up, between a savior and an enemy, a good master and an enemy. But the second level of this parable is to think about where we fit in the equation, and where we fit in the equation is humble servants trusting in the king, being faithful, and as the king says, hold, 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 we hold. If the king says, go out with this message of grace, you don't need to rip things up right now, we go out with that message of grace. That, not to bring about the reckoning, not to take hold of things by force, 
not to go around and ultimately be the final decider of who is and who is not, that, the message of grace, being representatives of this kingdom, that is our calling. And it is so very, very difficult when everything in the world is screaming that power is the truest thing. Not God. Power is the realest, truest thing. And if the weeds are going to play that game, the wheat's going to have to play that game too. But those aren't the teachings of Christ. The teachings of Christ are the weeds are going to play that game. You have something better. That is temporal. But the gospel of Christ, the message of his work on the cross and his resurrection, the message of the transforming power of the grace and forgiveness of God that defeats death, that defeats darkness, that defeats the evil that is even within us by his power, that is where life and salvation abide. And that is the invitation that we have to participate in. And so as a result, we read a passage like this, and the call is simple. Reject the way of the weeds. Reject the impulse to go and tear things up. Reject the approach to power and control and to usurp roles that are set aside for God. And instead, lean deeply into the true power of God, which is the word, the gospel, and God himself. I'll hand it back over to you. The question is, how do you distinguish between what we are supposed to be telling the truth about and fighting for, and what do we let God do? And I think the distinction is that, one, the act of judgment, uh, which is precluded in Matthew chapter 7, an earlier speech of Jesus. So if any of our actions include us in our minds, in our hearts, verbally, assuming the final authoritarian role of saying, those people are weeds and they are out, I think we've overstepped. What we can do with certainty is say, be indiscriminate with the seed of the gospel of the truth. And so there are really only two impulses we can have. One is the impulse to judge, condemn, taxonomize, sort, and rip up the bad. The other is imitating the, the values of Christ, which is this endless empathy and mercy, this uh, compassion that he has on everybody. Uh, in terms of, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but it was good. In terms of, what do you say? Well, you say everything. I mean, in season and out. There's, there's no preclusion here of us going out into the great wide world and saying things that are true about God, morality, ethics, the Bible, what's going on? I mean, absolutely, we're Everything about this says that we're engaged with the world. The question seems to be the orientation. Do we want that reckoning from God where he comes, you know, where we want to initiate the ripping up of the bad stuff? Or are we seeking to redeem and, and emulate the values of the kingdom? So I, I don't think there's any muzzle put on us here other than there is an orientation that doesn't make sense in light of this toward judgment. Do I need it? Yeah. Boom. I don't know. Oh, I'm being recorded. Well, to tag on to it, I think a lot of times, one of the, some of the things we do, we could be perfectly right in what we say or what we're attacking, or we don't need to attack. Christ tell, tells us to correct. Everything we do, we do it in love. So when we feel like somebody's stepping into our 
our rights. And I think as Americans, we sometimes overthink what our rights are. Like, we have this right, but we're Christians first. So we don't do it the same, we don't attack uh, our space being violated the same way we would as soldiers, except that we're doing it as the way soldiers for Christ would do it. So we do it in love. I mean, that's the only thing I would add on to, add on to it. And that's all I have to say about that. Good stuff. <laughs> Any other questions? Any other thoughts? We got a hand in the back. Yes, sir. It's a great question. And isn't it so obvious to you and me that that doesn't make any sense? He's Jesus. He existed before time began. He has no beginning and no end. He's God. He's unlimited in every way. He surely knows more than Peter. But I think, I think Peter is the character in the New Testament who is a lot like the character in any show that you might watch, where you sort of encounter the story through his perspective. I mean, Peter is the most like us of anybody we run into in the New Testament. Peter thinks he knows all the things, and we can tend to think that we know all the things. And so part of what we get when we look at the Gospels is we just get this jarring moment of, oh, Peter, you look so bad right now, man. You can't talk to him like that. He's God. And then if we think about it a little longer, we're like, oh, no, I am like that, too. And I might have the same problem. So I think Peter does it because he's flawed, like you and like me. I think Peter, I think we find out that Peter does it because the authors of the gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit want us to see what it looks like when somebody does that so that we might take a more humble approach to where we stand and who God is. I like your outfit, and that was a great question. It applies because of the rest of the Bible. In, in this specific parable, the context tells me with quite a bit of certainty that he is trying to, Jesus is trying to answer one specific question about how the kingdom is going to unfold over time. And the question is, are there still going to be destructive things? Or if the kingdom is now, why won't the bad things go away? And clearly he's saying, well, here's why, because that reckoning will happen later on. And in the meantime, you don't need to worry about the field being tended. It's tended. You can exhale. But we go through a whole bunch of the rest of the text, and the analogy holds. I mean, how many other places in the Bible do we run into stuff where we are told to examine our hearts? I mean, I think of 1 Corinthians 11 and the teachings surrounding communion, you're supposed to look at where you're at. Each one should examine his own heart, his own motives. I think of the instructions we get from Paul in the book of Romans about each of us thinking about our own pride and where we fit in relation to others and how we should think of ourselves. We get gallons of this teaching that says that this introspective life that you're describing is the Christian life, that there is this ongoing process of cooperating with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit sands down our weird, rough edges and flaws. So, yeah, I mean, you could not possibly be more right and more in keeping with the Bible. I'm just not sure that this text is necessarily carrying that weight for us. That said, it's like so many things, we can always grab onto an image or an illustration, and it can illustrate the point. And so separate from this point, sure, and we say, oh, we can imagine that we have a field of our own heart, and in that field, maybe destructive things grow, and maybe redemptive things grow. 
and we want to try to deal with the destructive things. Uh, it just isn't the central thrust of this particular passage, I think. Well, it doesn't look like that is what Jesus' ministry points toward in the short term, but it does look like that's what it points toward in the long term, that eventually, as you know, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it, at some point when all of this is done, and I think this passage does point to that moment, there is, to use the word again, a reckoning. There's a moment we get to where this era of patience, where God lets the field grow up until everything is revealed and clear, this era of patience comes to an end. And when we see those plants growing in the field all summer long, but it gets to be fall and it's harvest time. And you see the bigger equipment come out and you see farmers running those implements through their field and you see all of that stuff get taken down and sorted out, sent off to market. In the same way, we're in a season, it would seem, in the unfolding of the kingdom where it looks like the world kingdom at times is winning. It looks like the world kingdom stuff is truth. But the whole time, this wheat, the stuff that was sown by the good master, is also growing up. And when the time is right, and that, again, that's part of the beauty of this passage, the time is not up to us. When the master decides the time is right in his evaluation of the field, then he comes and separates those things out. So in the short term, now I don't see Jesus' teachings pointing toward a theocracy, but where I think you really hit the nail on the head is in the end, it's the most obvious theocracy ever as he establishes his obvious rule, separates everything out, resolves the question of evil and suffering, and every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Does that speak to what you were asking? No, well, the world doesn't follow uh, God's will that hmm. anybody goes forward. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And though he may not immediately in the short term conquer governments through the church and have the church run government all the time, he is still sovereign over everything. The text tells us that he directs the hearts of kings like a water course. Kings imagine they make decisions, but God is sovereign even over that. Now, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we hang out on the fringes and come by and just for you all to be so nice and let me be a part of this and help out. That was really, really cool. Thanks for thinking Bible together today. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.